and 9 to 1 a.m. on Radio Free Brooklyn. Good morning and welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VGR Nathan. And with us today is a special guest, uh, Eleanor Spears, who is a jazz improvisation uh, artist. So welcome, Eleanor. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Why don't we start off the conversation <clears throat> going a little bit to the uh, your background and, and uh, how you got to become or what training you required to become a jazz improvisation uh, artist. And then we can go from there. Thank you. Okay, sure. Um, well, I started as a classical violinist. I started pl- um, playing at the age of three and um, continued, went to the Royal Academy in London, um, very much an interpretive artist, and uh, then went back to South Africa and played with most of the professional ensembles there. But um, I landed up getting an injury and my left hand started going lame. The last, my little finger and my ring finger um, went lame and I kind of thought that was the end of my classical career, which was devastating at the time, but, um, led me to pursue other styles. And I was approached by a guitarist, Peter Naren in Cape Town, and we started playing weddings and functions and light jazz, light classical. And I got bored with just reading the melody. So I think that's kind of where my improvisation <laughs> started. Yeah. <laughs> so you said, use the term interpretive, interpretive meaning like you, um, interpretive artist. Meaning that you followed uh, scores, or was that, was uh, is that for something else, or like in those you're interpreting scores, or, or what does that interpretive artist mean? Uh, yes, um, I guess in the classical world, you're if you're studying or if you're a professional, you're not usually creating new music or improvising. Yeah. Oh, right. You're oh, interpreting uh, oh, works that have already been written for you. <laughs> oh, good, good. So then you started getting into improvisation when after the injury, and then you started to um, now tell us a little bit about the process of improvisation and how that, uh, how, how, how you break that down. I mean, I know, I know I had done some experience in like, uh, comedic impro- improvisation, you know, like improv or whatever, uh, in, in comedy and acting. Uh, and there's a, there's a structure, you know, to the, uh, long form. Uh, so what kind of structures underline, underlie, uh, musical improvisation? Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, I guess it's quite similar. Um, Ooh, that's a big question. Yeah. <laughs> it depends which kind of style you're improvising in. If it's straight ahead jazz, you usually have a form that's 32 measures long and you play the melody and then you play <clears throat> notes that correspond to the chords through the chart. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, uh, and then if you're playing free music, which is something I'm getting more and more into and I really, it's maybe my first love now, there's, you're either creating structure as you go or there is no structure, which is the structure. <laughs> yeah. um, and so then um, in, in some ways that's a more a challenging task because you're having to create structure and form and, and you use, you improvise a melody and then you'll bring that back later in the form to tell your audience where you are or, or not, but you're kind of creating a form as you go along. Good, good. So you were just saying something about... Um... Yeah, so then basically like the different genres and such. So what are some of the misconceptions about these kinds of, uh, about jazz and about uh, and about jazz improvisation, would you say? Yeah, I had many misconceptions myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, when I was in South Africa, when I was starting to cross over, I suppose, I had an idea to have a concert where I had half classical and half jazz and a bit of world music. And um, I just remember the first half was classical and 
I was excited for the second where I got to improvise, but then I started the first, second half and I had a jazz quintet with me and I, I was on stage and I suddenly realized I had no idea what I was doing, yeah. how to even start them. In classical, there's like, there are ways and means to start the group, but in jazz, that doesn't work. So <laughs> just the simplest things, counting people in was a mystery to me. Um, but then when I came to, then I decided on the stage that I had to really now study jazz. If I wanted to play it, I needed to be able to know what I was doing. So then I, I spent a year as an occasional student at the University of Cape Town, um, which I really enjoyed, but I kind of, I wanted a more serious focus. And so I started looking elsewhere and I landed up uh, at New York University doing my master's. And I think, I don't know, I guess part of the kind of Western imperialism in my classical training was I thought, well, I'm a classical violinist. How hard can this really be? <laughs> I was so wrong. <laughs> so I got to NYU and I um, was thrown into a master's and I was thrown in the deep end. I was put into a very um, good ensemble where everybody knew what they were doing and there was no music and they were just calling out standards in odd meters and I was absolutely lost. <laughs> so I think... Uh, one of the biggest misconceptions is that it's easy or that um, jazz musicians just make things up so they don't practice. I think jazz musicians are some of the most practicing people out there and you have to understand the music and have it memorized and understand the chord changes and understand what you can do on what chord changes and how you resolve. So you really, it's uh, in my mind, it's a much more astringent or more difficult musicianship that's, uh, that is required for jazz. And so this kind of conception that the classical musicians are the serious ones and jazz musicians just play around is absolute nonsense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like uh, also one of the uh, misconceptions that I think I've been also exposed to is like people have like the idea that everything is jazz or all music is jazz or or like that. Uh, the pervasiveness of like jazz is like a, a philosophical approach. Uh, so tell us a little bit about kind of how you encountered that and, and how like in the maybe lay people or maybe even musicians, they kind of feel like, this uh the oh it's just like oh it's like you know kind of like uh this pervasiveness of that you know, that misconception yeah right so, um sure yeah I think I hold quite an unpopular belief around that yeah. I think a lot of my professors and colleagues and people that I might admire say that all music is jazz um and they they want to be I think they just want to be inclusive and say that jazz is so pervasive and it is and they're and I like that about jazz musicians that they don't want to exclude anything but personally I feel that that kind of mm, detracts from what jazz really is I feel like jazz is an art form and it has boundaries and it has depth to it and I feel like if you don't you can't play Mozart or Brahms you can't consider yourself a classical musician in my head if you can't play changes or you can't swing or you can't do some of the fundamentals to jazz. I don't think you can call yourself a jazz musician. So, and that is not a very popular belief, but I feel like in some ways, if we don't define it or we don't explain what it is, then people don't take it seriously. And I really believe this art form is unbelievable and has so much potential. And I think we need to be able to define what it is and explain what's happening because to the general public, it's just a mystery. And I feel like that mystery is not helping us at this point. Yeah. So why don't we talk a little bit about some of the jazz greats and uh, and what you've learned from them as, a, as an artist and what you think they contribute. Uh, you can pick a, an artist or whatever you'd like and then just talk a little bit about kind of how, what they contributed to the field and how they, you know, define the, the genre. 
Right. Uh, well, I'm a huge fan of Coltrane. I I don't know. Everything about him just makes me so inspired and inspire, inspires me to practice. I feel like he um, was ahead of his time. He's actually still ahead of his time if he were alive today. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He was a, like a curious searcher. And I think that any musician that's really on this kind of journey of curiosity is in a good place. And I feel like I'm recently on that pathway myself. And it doesn't mean you've arrived or you're better. It just means you found like this flow, but it's inside the work you're doing. So you found this excitement and it's self-generating. So you don't have to have ex like extrinsic motivators. You just have this curiosity and excitement within what you're doing. And he, I guess, that, I mean, there's an early recording of him when he was in the Navy or the Army, and it's not very good. And that's very encouraging because he became... The, one of the best saxophonists in the world, but in the beginning he wasn't. <laughs> so for people like me who are coming to this style late in the day, it makes uh, it gives us hope that there's there's possibility that we might grow into a musician like he became one day. But um, I just love that he was forever searching. He was pushing the harmonic boundaries. He changed. Uh, he was playing very complicated harmonic things, and then he was he joined Miles Davis, and then he was playing modal stuff and. Then he he like started doing sheets of sound where he was combining different harmonies together in this crazy kind of scattering of sound, and then he moved from that. And he, um, I don't know, I just I feel like he just he never stopped. He never landed in a place, became famous for it, and stayed there, which I think most people do. If you find a place where you're famous and it's working, stay. But even his movement, which I'm writing my dissertation about at the moment, from his classic quartet, which uh, was very popular and his recording of A Love Supreme, which is the second most sold album in the world in jazz. He, he went on to, into free jazz and free music, which is now my curiosity, but he, and he lost a lot of his audience. In fact, there was an article that was saying that he became anti-jazz and downbeat. Oh. <laughs> and so that was, I think that kind of risk taking and he was led by an inner working of curiosity. I just love that. And he played, um, with people from different racial backgrounds. He played with women. He played with his wife. Uh, so many people at that stage, there was kind of a movement to black or African pride, which is valid and wonderful. But he, and he was part of that too. But I think it is beautiful that he didn't limit himself just to playing with one race or one gender. Or, and he was also interested in Indian music. And so he was one of the first to kind of honor music from other cultures. And that inspired people. He started with his kind of, he had this epiphany and he started uh, living like a clean, like a clean jazz musician. He became like a role model for younger jazz musicians to live clean and to live well. Um, so, yeah, there's just so much about him that I really admire. Uh, excellent. Excellent. And speaking of um, identity and uh, gender identity specifically, you mentioned a little bit about that. So now um, how does that influence, do you think? How do you think that in your role and, and is there any kind of uh well, well, tell us a little bit about the, your perception of being a woman in jazz, as a jazz improviser and how that's influenced you or how uh, your interaction with other musicians and all this kind of thing and how you feel it's being welcomed or or, not, or whatever, yeah. Right, um, yeah, not the easiest thing. I think um, I don't hear many women talk about it, although during Me Too there were a few that came out and talked about this, although I don't feel that there were real ramifications in the industry. People men who spoke out against women didn't really suffer in their careers. Mm. <coughs> Excuse me. But um, I guess it's, the industry is so small that nobody cares. If it happens in Hollywood, it matters. But if it happens yeah. in jazz, no one knows. 
So um, I do feel when I walk into a room, also as a violinist, you walk into a room and they take one look at your instrument and they're like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and as a woman, I feel like I'm not just accepted. I have to prove myself everywhere I go. And often I have to prove myself multiple times to the same people. I feel in free jazz, it's much more open. I've so enjoyed working with people of all ages, especially in, in Brooklyn. I feel like they're so open. They're, there's no gender bias. But in straight ahead jazz, there's definitely a lot, yeah. of, a lot to be done still. <laughs> so you were saying in your pre-interview stuff about uh, being inspired by inspiring music by other um, mediums like Van Gogh, especially. Uh, tell us a little bit about how like interdisciplinary, how you're able to produce material based on art or based on all this kind of thing. And, and what are some experiences you've had doing that? Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. I think in 2017, I was at the MFA in Boston and I was kind of looking at uh, where I could perform the kinds of music I was performing and looking for ideas. And I, I came across a, a Van Gogh, as you say here in South Africa. It's a, a Van Gogh. I can't even remember anymore. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, I've heard that. Van Gogh, I think. Van Gogh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we have the sound. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the houses of others, I'm probably saying it wrong. But um, And I had like an experience. It, was, it must have been like 20 minutes. It was... It was a crazy experience. I was right at the end of my three years of my doctorate and I, I kind of felt like I hadn't slept for a long time. <laughs> and, I, and I thought I was kind of losing my mind because I was looking at this painting and I, I was just riveted and I kind of saw, I looked at different aspects of the painting and I saw, I heard music, but literally I heard it like a radio was playing inside my head. Yeah. And then I looked at different parts of the same painting and the music changed as I looked at different kind of textures or different aspects. And, uh, and I, I'm famous for not having a good memory. It's affected me in classical and it affects me in jazz. So I think I just have to be such a musician that I don't need to remember. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, so anyway, I was looking at this painting and as my eyes went back to like the, uh, the parts that I had seen already, this music, the same music returned and the music changed. And then as I looked, it was like kind of creating my own little fugue or something yeah. as I was looking at the painting and I was like wow what is happening <laughs> to my mind this is incredible um I'm a, I mean a huge Van Gogh fan anyway but um and that experience made me like started me on this different journey I, I kind of thought I want to be I've always been interested in interdisciplinary arts in fact even when I was in London I was talking about if I did a master's that's what it would be in but um I didn't expect an experience like that. And so then I, I was kind of mulling this over. And by the beginning of 2018, I decided that I was going to try and do, like I have perfect pitch or absolute pitch. So I figured if I can hear music, I can play it. So I organized to play at a gallery in Cape Town. Uh, the curator was amazing. She or the owner, she was just so open to my ideas. I didn't expect that. And I think everyone was nervous because no one knew what I was going to do. Neither did I, actually. Uh -huh. Anyway, I got my little sister, Taya. She came and filmed me. And I the, the building was uh, square, so it was a bit easier to manage than some of the places I've played at later. But And the paintings were incredible. There was It was like a exhibition of several different really great South African artists and so each work was extremely different which made my job a lot easier and so I just looked at the paintings I didn't hear it like hear it like I heard the Van Gogh but I just reacted and it was such an intense 
amazing experience. It was just like trying to get inside the work and it speaking to me and like having a conversation with an artwork. And I was a bit nervous because the artists were there, some of them, and I was I just didn't want to offend their conception of their oh. works at all. But some of them came up to me and they were so they were so thankful and grateful and were said that, that I had added to the depth of the work and and apparently. Um, statistically, people only look at artworks for less than five seconds at a gallery. Yeah. And so this was a means that people had to actually engage with, with, uh, for a longer t- period of time, which art deserves. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so maybe it might be fun to, I have your website up as we discussed, um, uh, what is it called? The classic jazzviolin.com. So people can look that up. Um, why don't we play a little bit of something and then you can give like a commentary? Would you like to do that? Sure. Okay. So, uh, which uh, which post do you think I should do? Hundred painting interpretation, maybe, or something else? Yeah. Okay, uh, we can do the hundred. Yeah. Um, the one in Cape Town. This sounds not the best, but maybe that's a good one. Too. Yeah, the Cape Town one. Okay, yeah. so start, state of the art Cape Town, right? That one. That's right. Okay, cool. Well, let me just pull it up. Um, let's see if I can get my volume up. Oh, I have to. Thank you. 
so this is a long clip I'll let it play in the background and then uh, so now um, when you're looking at the painting or when you're studying the painting is there a specific cues you use like is there you're looking at the colors you're looking at and just invoking the feeling or tell us a little bit about how you are able to uh, it's just like allowing a visceral uh, yeah tell us a little bit how you Sure, I might struggle to concentrate with that. On yeah, try to stop it. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, language and music shares the same center in your brain. So. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, um, especially that first experience, I realized there was a cut out painting that was beautiful but didn't have color, and I avoided it just yeah. instinctively. Yeah. Um, which is a shame because it, it could have gone by texture, but I think color is probably the first one and then textures next and I think I don't know I'm a huge fan of kind of hiking and being in nature and I realized that that's partly why we like nature it's the texture of the water against the bark against the leaves against the sky so in paintings I'm looking for that too so I would say color and texture and movement Van Gogh has got a lot of movement yeah I, I had the experience where uh I just recently or yesterday I think it was uh went to a ballet performance which was an interpretation well it was it was a film filming of a, a ballet performance a film of a ballet performance and there's the interpretation of uh Dostoevsky's the Boris Karamazov although I haven't read that work uh, I'm kind of familiar a little bit with the thematics and the ideas behind it and uh you know I found myself kind of watching the ballet performance I'm not too you know like I haven't had too much experience with ballet so I had like almost interpret, you know, I'd like verbally like go through like, oh, now this, this uh, ensemble is like, you know, translating it almost <laughs> yes. in my brain, you know, especially when we encounter new art forms, I think we have to kind of do this kind of process of like, all right, so now, now the, the background ballet dancers, like the, the proletariat or like the working class. You know? <laughs> and I was yes. like, all right, so now, and then this is the father. And, you know, even though, you know, most performances, we don't need to do that. I don't think, but this is your natural, you know, naturalistic narrative. I don't think we need to do that, but you know, it's kind of spoon feeds it to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So tell us a bit about like, uh, like some of the things, ways in which you've done that maybe with the new art form or something or ways in which you've like kind of grappled with when you started, maybe uh, how you grappled with translating and how it's become intuitive to you now, a little bit of your process of uh, the growth process. Yeah. Uh, in terms of it's interdisciplinary. In you take it anything. Yeah. Um, I think like <laughs> it's funny in, in Brooklyn, I feel like there's a lot of interdisciplinary happening. But when I was in Boston, I didn't feel like that was such a major thing. So this I started this art interpretation when I was living there. And then for my final recital, I got an improvising dancer to join us. And I think everyone was like, what? <laughs> yeah. Oh, cool, cool. Nice. nice. And there's a video of that up there, too. Yeah. But I mean, you can't see the dancers, so maybe not <laughs> that useful. Yeah. But um yeah, but and actually that that happened out of a crazy circumstance. I was we were interviewing people, uh, roommates uh, to replace a roommate because um, I had two yeah two roommates at the time. And this girl, this lady, came to be interviewed by us, and it turned out she was a dancer. And then her room would be right next door to the, my cellist roommate. So I wanted the cellist to play so she could hear how loud it would be in her room. Yeah. So then the cellist played for her and she was like, oh, that's beautiful. That's fine. And then she said, well, now you have to play the violin. And I was like, well, I'll play the violin if you dance. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, her girlfriend was there with a the guitar. Well, she used my guitar or something. And, and she's like, OK, well, let's do it together. And so we had this incredible moment where I was playing violin. Her girlfriend was playing guitar and she was dancing and it was 
I, I, that again, that's something that's changed my whole perception of the world because I was watching her and I felt like as if we were two musicians working together, although it wasn't via sound, I almost could see the electromagnetic energy or something. I don't know what it was yeah. coming off her. And we had this, like, we were so excited. We couldn't stop giggling for hours afterwards. Uh-huh. And of course, we included her into our household immediately. Yeah. <laughs> but that experience, just, I feel like science one day will catch up with us and it'll explain these kinds of interactions because it was so tangible. It was like electricity snapping in the air. That's how good it felt. And that's how united we felt, even though we were in different art forms. So then I got her to to dance in my doctoral recital and she was so brave (laughs) because I had a lot of very good female jazz musicians playing. And then she, it didn't give her any parameters. I just said, we're going to improvise and so are you. Good luck. (laughs) (laughs) And she was, she was brilliant. I'm so impressed with her, but I've seen that kind of thing in New York, but at the time in Boston, I hadn't seen anything like that. And I felt I was taking a big risk, (laughs) but then I have seen things like classical music, like there was a group playing, I think Brahms at the MFA and, some dancers came in, they were doing kind of contemporary struggle dancing, I guess I would call it. And then amongst all these very rich kind of Renaissance paintings, and I remember thinking that doesn't really work. They're not actually talking to each other. It's just a lot of color in one room, but not, I don't want to be mean or anything. I just didn't feel like that. that I, the connection I'm looking for is something much more immediate, that we actually have to affect each other. It's not just placing arts in the same area needs to feed off each other in a more tangible way. And that's, that's what I'm interested in. Yeah. So it's interesting when you get down to the, uh, now this, this is all, this was, um, now with improvisation, when you consider like the originality and like the, um, uh, phraseology and such, you know, so those like, tell us a little bit more about the language and, and a little bit of the theory behind like phraseology and such. And like how, like, I know very little, so I just know like, you know, you're talking about melody and how like the melody kind of repeats or something, or it comes back, and then you're kind of doing a random notes, or how do you kind of break it down to like the, the really, or someone who's like musically, you know, like illiterate or something, like, <laughs> know, like really basic, yeah, sure. yeah. Um, well, in free music, uh, in straight-ahead jazz, usually uh, it's a bit easier to explain in free music, and that's something that's quite recent for for me. But I've been asked to play a lot of solo free music, which the beginning, I was like, wow, like, wow, you're just on your own yeah, with exactly, nothing yeah. to hold on to. Yeah. I don't even have a painting to hold on to. Yeah. Um, and the first time I did it, I was kind of a bit scared. It was just like in an underground, somebody's home where we were all these musicians came from all over the East Coast who love free music. And I just, I'm like, well, you have to say yes if you get asked to play yeah. something like that. And um, and I, I kind of really surprised myself. I, I kind of... I know that improvisation has been a part of classical music for a long time, from the beginning until about the 1850s. It was a mainstay. It was how Beethoven composed. They would improvise, and then they had great memories that write down what they played. But all of them, Mozart, Chopin, um, Liszt, they were all incredible improvisers. So... But I remember thinking, how on earth do you improvise a fugue? It's hard enough improvising on chord changes that are in front of you. But how do you have a melody and move it around in different parts and then add another melody and then change key and keep those structures in your head? I didn't think I could do that. But in this solo improvisation, that kind of thing happened. It wasn't in a classical style particularly, but I had elements that I brought in and then I could bring them back again later. And that was 
so exciting because then you give your listeners something to hold on to as well. Yeah. It's not just like a stream of consciousness. So, um, and so since then I've done a few solo improvs and I love it. It's, it's taxing, but uh, I really love it. And I've kind of gone more into extended techniques and noise music, which I also didn't expect to happen, but you can use um, textures, music textures. You can use techniques. You can use melody. You can use rhythm. You can use harmonies, harmony in a way that, provide structure as you're going so you're what compromising <laughs> composer yeah. improvising good good and talk a little bit about yourself as a uh um like not just a musician but also as a person like what were some of the influences that um what are some of the like books or uh pieces of art that really uh going a little deeper into that and about that really influenced you growing up and brought you into this path all right um well, I think my, my very first teacher, I don't, I don't know if she realizes, but I think she was a major influence on in all of us. Um, I was five years old, I think, when she took us on. She was Hungarian, um, Maria Mason. And I think all of us, she left not long after. I think I only had her for a year or two, but she left South Africa and moved with her husband and family to Ireland, where she still is. But... Um, she had this kind of fire about her and she kind of said, you know, if you have the violin, <laughs> yeah. you'll never be lonely or you'll yeah. never, you'll have something until you die. <laughs> yeah. And I really bought into that, I guess. Yeah. But um, it's like, you've got this magic and you will, you will have it forever kind of thing. And when I was at the Academy in London, I kind of really went off classical and I remember thinking like, wow, she was a liar. <laughs> ah. This thing is not like this life-giving source. This is a perfectionist kind of awful hell <laughs> or something. Ah. But <laughs> but all of us um, from that time, we all still play, which is really unusual. Not everyone's professional, but the fact that all those kids that she had, she affected us so deeply. And I think in a South African culture where it's all about sport and being in the, at the beach, <laughs> yeah. to have someone that passionate about the arts is unusual. Maybe, maybe then it was unusual, but, and maybe still is. But um, yeah, she instilled this thing, <laughs> this fire. And I think I've always looked for that. Um, and also she trained us in Kodai method. I remember some of the weekends we'd go and do kind of um, oral ex uh, exercises and I think that a lot of us have perfect pitch because of that um, if, you, if you give a child something like that young enough you can develop perfect pitch so that definitely I think has always stayed with me um, as, I got, as I got older as a teenager I really got into literature I loved um, kind of Dickens and I don't know that, and I loved Shakespeare and I loved, yeah. so those were all very important to me <laughs> and yeah, I, I, you were saying about uh, the Jazz being a high art and should be treated as such honor and taught at schools. I guess your experience was that at what age was this teacher? What age, what, the Hungarian saying, teacher, yeah, like five years. Oh, five years, that's right, yeah. yeah. So, but do you find that in general it's taught, it's taught well or it's not even taught? I mean, like in New York, they're defunding a lot of music education, you know. So what, what are some of the things that you think could be done to, um, or how, how, can we, how can we help as the, as the audience to kind of help uh, bring musical instruction uh more important i mean just by talking about it's helping but what are some what are some things you think that or, or what do you think where do you see the issues being um well do you do much instruction yourself or do you teach uh do you teach students as well or 
Uh, and and what are some of the ways in which we can support her? Right. Um, I, I did. In London, in Boston, I was teaching quite a bit more. Since I moved to New York, not so much. Not so much, okay, yeah. But, um, I mean, yeah, this funding, funding for the arts is... That's fundamental. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I'm surprised. I think as a South African, I'm really surprised that jazz isn't taught at schools here. I feel like just like classical, you need an introduction. You need a context to explain why it's good, because maybe it's not the easiest thing to access to start with if you're listening to pop music or whatever it is, Disney as a child. Yeah. And then uh, and I feel I feel about jazz the same way I feel about Shakespeare. Shakespeare maybe is not the easiest thing to get into, but it's worth the, the effort. Yeah. And it's uh, I think Shakespeare is so profound. I mean, there's so many other examples. He's just one that I, I really love and have studied quite a lot. Um and he just gets to the, like, his work is still relevant today. He gets the sense of humanity and how people work. and um, But it takes, it really does take effort to get past the language. And, yeah. And the structure and the, I don't know, the datedness, I guess, just in terms of we're so far in terms of language. But um, I, I feel like jazz is the same. It, it's it's not easy, not necessarily very accessible to start with. But as I've gone on and studied it um, as a total beginner, kind of coming from a classical perspective, it has engrossed me more and more. And I think because I, you need people to help you help help you get into it, <laughs> explain what's happening in a better way, just by hearing it more. But I feel like it's one of the greatest art forms to come out of America. In fact, it's the only art form, as far as I know, that comes specifically out of America. And then, of course, all these other styles, hip hop and rap, it all comes out of jazz. Um, and the fact that that it's not taught at schools here, not yeah. prioritized, and people, the general public doesn't understand it, I, I think is sh- kind of shocking. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And a real loss because this is something, like I remember reading a book a few years ago about how America was concerned, like what have we produced culturally? Are we just taking Europe's classical music? You know, what are we doing? And jazz was the answer to those questions. And and since then we've dropped it Um I really just, yeah, my message would be it's worth the effort. It's it's so engrossing. It's so complex. And it really speaks to you in ways that other music can't. So Why don't we pick out another uh, sample from your website? What do you, what do you think? What is coming for you um, as far as like something we can talk about or, or any of the, let me see, there's uh, the, um, uh, the dance, but then people won't be able to see it. They should check that out, though. And then the, um, you have some interpretations, I think, of, um, what is it? I just saw something. Uh, Simply Love for You. There's all singing in this one? Oh, uh, yeah. No, yeah. It's a tour with uh, <laughs> Amazing Grace. Is That's you on tour? Or uh, that's that's a, yeah, general? with the Mina Cho Quintet. Um, yeah, that's good. Or you that's could. With, with different. Uh, um, you could maybe go to Bounce. Um, it'll be under original. Original works, okay. Yeah. Let's see. The World Foundation on tour. Um, original uh, balance. Yeah, here it is. Thank you. 
right. Thank you. Thank you. This is really <laughs> great. Um, so I'll throw you a few of the questions, although we've touched on some of these things, but we'll just kind of expand a little deeper. Um, so uh, what experience do you often reflect on that were watershed moments in your own process? Oh, um, I think a major one is uh, Judas Sapuma at the International Jazz Festival in Cape Town quite a few years ago now. But I was there with a friend and uh, she was doing her set on the main stage and it was great. And then um, at the end of her last song, she <laughs> starts singing again and um, something totally changed. She was singing, uh, her, mu her musicians had started packing away and they got their instruments out again. She was hitting high notes that she doesn't usually hit and it was just this amazing presence just moved in the room. People started screaming like it was a rock concert. I, that is, it was a transformative moment for me because I remember thinking I'm a spiritual person and um, I love that feeling of playing uh, in my mind according to the Holy Spirit or in the church or I love that so much. And this felt like that, but amplified in a very kind of, I don't know, cosmopolitan, heady environment. <laughs> and um, people still talk about that to this day. It was, it was an incredible experience and that kind of changed my view of what I wanted. I think it really set me on the jazz path because I was like, oh, if that's possible, if you can reach people to that level and kind of reach something bigger than yourself to that degree in a secular environment, I want that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's really great that uh, you mentioned about how, because we've had some other speakers and such talk about how we're kind of like almost like a conduit or kind of like a medium for as artists for uh, some larger forces or some larger God maybe or yeah. divine spirit to move through us and that we, we no longer have to cerebrally think like, oh, you know, now I have to do this or I have to do that. It's more like allowing the energy to flow through you. Tell us a little bit more about that and your process and how faith comes into that. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, that's been a goal and it hasn't happened. It didn't happen for a long time for me uh, inside Church meetings, yes, but as soon as I was playing outside, maybe kind of all the, the concerns of um, having to play it right or um, whatever they may be. But maybe the last two or three years, it suddenly started happening for me, and uh, I'm really excited about that. I, that's what I want, because then yeah. you're, you're able to impact people to a much greater degree than just your own, what you have to say, your own voice and your own spirit or soul whatever you've got it's like there's a bigger thing happening that we yeah. can't totally explain so uh, i think the first time it really happened i was um it's like a weird <laughs> life experience but i was on a ferry on the way to nantucket to play just a wedding like backing strings for a wedding and i met this guitarist who was leading this group at the cisco brewery and he's like you should come and join us we were playing like gypsy kings kind of stuff <laughs> So I remember thinking, okay, this is a bit weird, but I landed up joining them on stage at the Cisco Brewery and something happened during that performance. I mean, everyone we were, everyone was drinking beer and everyone's happy and it's like summer and everyone's hanging outside and something happened in that music that day. And I remember just looking up and seeing a row of 10, for some reason, like very blonde, very blue-eyed kids yeah. standing in front of me and totally engrossed. And it was this, nothing like 
the level that Judas the Puma had reached, but it was like they, like this was not kiddie music. They, something was happening that they were touched and they were just mesmerized. They were just standing there still for like ages. And people's, the exp- I remember looking up and seeing the expression on some of the people's faces who had just been jolly and kind of enjoying themselves before. And there was a look of a little bit like consternation. <laughs> like I could tell that like, they were like, what is this? What is this feeling? What is happening? I don't understand. And that was so encouraging for me. So it's, it started happening and, and I look for it now. I, I kind of expect it. Um, I don't want to just be doing this on my own. I want a collaborative force with me. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool, cool. And you'd written down, uh, as far as like what you want the audience to come, take away from this to think that you want to get them the feeling of like, we're interpreting, uh, of freedom and joy. Tell us a little bit more about what, when the audience really resonates that, that you're expanding on that, that they have the courage to explore all this kind of stuff. What, what is it? What do you, what feedback have you gotten or people coming up to you and saying they felt something and what is kind of the, uh, general, um, as you progress, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, well, I remember as a classical musician, even at high school, I remember playing Mozart concerto and people crying at the yes. cadenza. Yes. And, <laughs> and Mozart's not exactly your most <laughs> joking. I don't yeah. think, I mean, I love Mozart, but yeah. I, that was unexpected. And that was kind of something that was consistent in my classical playing before I went to London. And, and when I got to London, I, I struggled. I changed my technique to try and like preserve my very double jointed fingers didn't work in the end, I guess. But, um, and I remember my teacher saying to me there, like you people from the third world, Uh you believe in magic. Uh (laughs) If that ever happens to you in your life again, in your profession, you're lucky. And I was like, ah, this used to happen to me every concert. Like I don't want to lose that. But by the time I'd finished at the Academy, I had lost that. I couldn't feel anything about my own playing, never mind reach an audience. And so that was partly why I tried to change careers. Cause I'm like, I have no like inclination to have great technique. I really want to reach people. If I can't reach people, I don't want to do music. Yeah, <laughs> like, <I think> perhaps <laughs> it's like when you get, when you get really strict about structure, then, you know, people feel like I've heard this before, maybe, or they get inoculated or they feel like, uh, yeah, maybe they, as, as a listener, maybe did you experience that? And, the experience like kind of like, oh, now my, my already hearing kicks in or I don't know. What is that? You know, what is that experience? Where, when do you get moved uh, really emotional about music? And, and when does it kind of leave flat, leave you flat? Yeah, I think if it's, I mean, I've heard some, I'm not going to name any names. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard some violinists that like play so beautifully and so well. But if they play the same piece again, it's exactly the same interpretation. And that. In itself is very impressive that you can do that. You have such control over what you're doing that you can produce exactly the same interpretation. That is kind of amazing. But to yeah. me, I'm like, no, I, don't. <laughs> I want every performance to be unique and I want it to be determined by who's in the audience and how I'm feeling. And uh, and I remember like in classical, my favorite moments in a concerto, I would almost leave them not unpracticed, but undecided because I wanted my my favorite moments, I wanted that to exist only in the in the moment in the concert, which mm. I don't know why I had that conception, but <laughs> that and I remember those the, I would play this entire concerto just for those moments of beauty. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think like coming into jazz um, and improvised music and world music, which I love with improvisation too, uh those moments are then are undecided totally. You have, you have some structure there, but you're making everything up in the spot. And I feel like my playing is better when I'm improvising. I somehow feel 
when I read music, it's less, maybe it's just psychological, but I feel more constricted. And when I'm hearing sounds and I'm replicating that, I feel much more free technically and, and in myself. But I think a good example is I was playing a solo improv in Germany in Augsburg at an arts conference and um, and I kind of expected to do some interdisciplinary thing, something, but it ended up just being me on stage by myself. And that was definitely the first time I'd ever done that. And I was like, wow, what am I supposed to do? I'm not a chordal instrument. <laughs> like, it's hard work on the violin to be on your own. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to play unaccompanied Bach. I don't know. <laughs> and so on the plane on the way there, I was like, okay, what am I going to do? And I have to come up with some ideas. And I thought, okay, well, I've done painting interpretations. Maybe I should do like a people, a person interpretation, which I did. I called up people from the audience and I played them, which uh, was really fun. That's really fun. <laughs> and yeah. then one of them could play the piano. So I got him to play with me. We just did a spontaneous improvisation on stage. He was blown away. This German audience, they were not expecting this South African <laughs> wild person. <laughs> and, um, and one of my friends had done her recital recently and she, she's a singer. Um, from Korea won me and she she uh, she so inspired me one of her pieces was she asked the audience to give her words so it was like theater sports I don't know what you call it here improv comedy maybe yeah and then she sang a song using those words as the theme and it was so good I mean to be able to do that in language and singing is very impressive but I got the audience to give me some words and I just constructed an improv based on those words um, and that was really effective and afterwards I think I was so, it was amazing. I had people come up to me and say that they felt so free <laughs> and that they were inspired to start practicing and playing again, that they wanted to create that somehow this weird experimental thing I had done on stage, which included them to such an extent, had really set them on a course to do their own work. And it was, there was so much joy. And I think that is, I feel very strongly that, um, Every person is is creative. Every person has got something they're good at. And we're kind of constricted by society. I think like if you place yourself in a place of risk in front of people and, and encourage them to join you, you can help that person jump over the societal barriers <laughs> to creating themselves. And I think that's very important. This kind of leads into the next question about um, as you start to wrap up, but um, what truths do you think are undervalued in society in the broader public? Um, and, uh, what, how do you think that can, uh, how can you think jazz can open up a pathway for people to feel empowered and just listening? Maybe, maybe not everyone can, you know, go, go down the road of playing, but this thing jazz can, and can become empowering. Right. Yeah. Um, I think my mom always used to say to me, to yourself, be true. And it was something her father used to say to her. He was a engineer coming out of Denmark and did incredibly well and, traveled the world and I feel connected to him well, now that I'm also international, <laughs> kind of moving around in a different space. But um, I think that's fundamental to who I am and how I live and how I see the world. I think, I mean, I remember, I don't know why this sticks in my head so strongly, but I must have been really young, like six. And I remember watching Greece for the first time at some hotel thing where they looked after the kids. And I remember being so disappointed by how it turned out. I was like, no, yeah. Sandy like just bought into the lie. <laughs> and uh, I know that movie's meant to make you feel like she triumphed in the end, but I was like, no, she sold out. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and even at that age, I, I just always felt that way. I'm like, why does it have to be like this? Or why is this 
I've just questioned everything and I, I don't know why that is particularly, but I really believe like we're all so scared of keeping up with the Joneses or being left behind or, you know, how does it look from the outside that we don't concentrate on what we actually want or what we actually, how we want to live or what is true to who we really are. And I feel like jazz really kind of champions the individual voice, the individual creativity um, it, it it champions also being like a collective and being in, in community and you know you don't want to play with someone who's egotistical and takes all the spotlight or all the solos you want to be with people that share and collaborate and I think that's um, jazz coming out of an African community I feel like growing up in South Africa um, Afri- like black South Africans they're much better at sharing they're much better community I feel very privileged for having grown up amongst people who who prioritize community because I feel like People of European descent, we're so like, it's my success, <laughs> it's yeah. my individual, whatever. Yeah. And I feel like jazz celebrates that and it celebrates the individual. What new thing can you bring? What is your sound? What is your unique take that we can all learn from? And I think that's that's beautiful. <laughs> that's beautiful. Thank you. So you're listening to Radio Fear Brooklyn, independent listener-supported radio. Radio Fear Brooklyn's mission is to support, uh, provide a free and open platform to our community Brought me to literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. So every dollar helps us continue to stay on air, support independent community media by pledging whatever you can afford. Uh, all contributions are tax deductible to folks sent to law. Uh, please support the monthly pledge or one time donation at readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate, or you go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash shoot to power and put down sponsor this show. So you can sponsor this particular show to help alleviate costs. Um, if you like listening to RFB when you're in front of your computer and you want to um, try to listen to it on your phone, please go to iPhone or Android app stores, uh, Google Play Store for Android and the uh, iTunes uh, app store for iPhone. And then you can download the app, the RFB app. So just put it in Ready for Brooklyn and you'll find the free app to listen to the live stream and also to access our uh, back backlog of catalog for all of our shows. So um, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter, the latest news and new programming, upcoming RFP events. You can also give us a like at Facebook. Uh, I'm also on VJR Nathan Poet, and I'll give uh, Eleanor a chance to um, give her plugs uh, in one second. Uh, Ready for Brooklyn's Drive to Five fundraising campaign is underway. In May, um, RFP turns five years old, and we need to raise 25000 to um, so we can continue to bring you commercial free independent media. For another five years, because we think money, raising money should be fun, each month we'll be bringing listeners fun challenges with great prizes. Our first is a trivia quiz to find out just how you know RFB. Um, the top five scores will win a limited edition five, fifth anniversary uh, RFB t-shirt. You can also dial 718-673-8201 to leave a message letting us know why you love RFB uh, or to wish us a happy birthday. Your message uh, may be played on air. Thank you, thank you. So, Eleanor, why don't you give us some uh, uh, places that they can follow you or any, any uh, plugs you want to do? Sure. Yeah, um, yeah my website is uh, classicjazzviolin.com. You can see my videos and what I'm up to, my calendar. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, Eleanor Spears, or my my page, I guess. You yeah. can find my band, Touchstone, all-woman jazz band, Um also a Facebook page and Brazilian Violent Collective, also a Facebook page. Yeah, I'd love to hear from you. Cool, cool. So we'll go out listening to one more of the songs. Um, kind of going on, seeing whatever um, 
Yeah, do the one. top one. That's the top most one, recent. Okay, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's great. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> the um, Aaron uh, Rubenstein is the company owner. Munchmore's NYC, right? Aaron Rubenstein. Yeah, Rubenstein, I was saying yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Uh, please tune in uh, every Monday at 8 a.m. for Truth to Power Show. Thank you.